Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Uh, yeah, I think it's generally understood that most men were farmers, for instance. Uh, but, you know, this data this data confirms that with some numbers. So, you know, uh, in, in many cases, like 70, 80 percent of the, the men, depending on the state, turned out to be as farmers. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Douglas Dorney, giving us a closer look at the numbers inside of South Carolina's Revolutionary War soldiers. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Douglas Dorney, and he's going to give us a closer look at the numbers inside of South Carolina's American Revolutionary War soldiers. Doug Dorney's written for the American Revolution for quite a while now. He's sort of our numbers guy. He's a go-to person for statistics. He's already provided a very detailed analysis of Georgia and North Carolina, And now he continues his research and studies with a look at South Carolina's Revolutionary War soldiers, their participation, where they came from, and how they served. It's a great article, and I hope you check it out. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Douglas Dorney. Douglas Dorney, welcome back. It's great to be back. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I have maybe a little bit of an unconventional background for someone who writes about the Revolutionary War. I'm an architect by trade. My, I have degrees in architecture, and that's something I've been doing for 25 years is, 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 is uh, practice as a licensed architect. Um, but, um, yeah, my, my, my interest in the Revolutionary War really started with my father, who was a Vietnam vet, combat vet from, from the Vietnam era, and he was always reading history growing up, and I was always interested in what he was reading, so I would read it too. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I never got to take history classes in college, but after college, many years ago now, I started taking, I guess, audited courses in history. And that's really where my love of revolution comes from, was I had some, a few great professors who really instilled the love of Revolutionary War in me. And at the time, I lived in Charlotte, and one of our trips was to the Kings Mountain National Battlefield. And that was a trans transformational experience for me is that I started gobbling up everything I could on the Revolutionary War. And that was many years ago. And and eventually I started doing primary research and getting interested in topics that I didn't think were very covered. And and, uh, eventually uh, um, in the mid 20 teens, I started writing about it and eventually started getting articles published uh, mainly in the journal of the American Revolution. So uh, that was 2019, 2018, 2019. Uh, so here we are now, uh, five or six years later, and uh, several articles, and maybe more coming soon in that regard. But yeah. What first drew your interest into this topic? 
Well, I, 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 thinking, think, thinking about that a little bit, um, everything, all, everything I've written about comes from other things that I've researched, if that makes sense. So, you know, you're, you're doing research on a topic and you come across something that piques your interest. And what I usually do is kind of, as I write it down in a Google doc, which of, of all the things I'd like to research, and that's really where this topic came from was, was researching a, uh, the first article I ever wrote, which is in a British journal, British historical journal journal was published in 2020, I believe. I was writing about a battle that happened in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1780, basically a battle between the American militia and British regulars so, or and provincial soldiers. And I found that uh, I knew quite a bit and could find out quite a bit about British soldiers, but I almost I knew no, almost nothing and could find nothing about the American militia. And I lived in North Carolina at the time, and I still live there. And it was, it was always a, a, a giant question mark of what is this entity called the American militia, uh, or and specifically the North Carolina militia. So uh, at, right about that time when I was doing a lot of this research, uh, a number of people started uh, transcribing and, and uh, publishing online pension applications. Uh, so for that work, not to speak too too long, go into too much detail, but basically I started researching the pension applications of the men who fought in that battle. And uh, I came up with a spreadsheet to keep it all organized. And uh, that's really where that started was, was when that work was done. I, I had a thought one day just driving into work about, well, you know, what if you took, <laughs> what what if you did that for the entire militia, you know? Uh, and it was really that's really where it started was 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 that idea of how were these men that fought in Charlotte in 1780 different from the rest of the North Carolina militia. I knew the answer to that by and large. I knew they were very much different from men who had served in the eastern part of the state, for instance, because um, you know, just just having read a bunch of pension applications. So that's really where it started was was a search to perhaps quant- start to quantify. Um, all of the men of the American militia was a daunting task, um, but that's really where it started. Doug, could you talk a, a little bit about your methodology for researching this subject? Oh, oh boy. Um, yeah, that, that, that's the most difficult part of this project is really the, the most difficult part is the number of pension applications. But, um, well, the, the first thing I did was try to get an idea of how many pension applications, for instance, for the, the first the first. The first article I did was on the North Carolina militia, and now we, we the fourth article in uh, dealing with South Carolina soldiers. But the first thing I tried to do is get a handle on how many pension applications there are. So um, you know that that's really where it starts is to get an idea of, of what the work effort entails. But in, in terms of the basic methodology, um, the first thing I do is you know get a sense of how many applications there are in there. There are ways to find that out. Uh, you know um, all of my all of the pension applications I, I use come from a website called Southern Campaigns Revolutionary War Pension Statements and Rosters. That's a, that's a mouthful, I know. But there's something like 28,000 documents there. All of the pension applications of the southern states are there. So that's for, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. And that's really where my work starts and ends, by and large, is, is, is harvesting the data from, the, from that website. Uh, and, and, um, but yeah, the, in terms of the method methodology, it's pretty simple, uh, is, is it's just using the search criteria on that website and filtering out, uh, the men from the state that I'm studying 
and uh, you know all of these are PDF documents. And um, you know, in terms of how I document the work, it's a simple Google spreadsheet, a Google, you know, it's a Google online uh, on the cloud document, and it starts with a man's name, his pension app, his pension application number. Uh, as a row, so each man gets a row, and then moving across, it's it's all of the data that I could find is uh, out of a pension application, which is uh, where he was born, where he served, uh, the number, the years that he served, where the pension where the pension was filed, um, how he served, being a volunteer, a substitute, or a draftee, uh, a number of other data points like whether or not he was a prisoner, whether or not he was literate, uh, a number of points that are detailed in, in the article. So all those all those are columns in this very simple spreadsheet. And then eventually when you get way off to the right, after about 50 columns, there's not, there's about 100 more columns of, of battles. Um, so in chronological order, and of course all those aren't checked for each man. Man has one or two checks generally. In that in those hundred columns, but that's that's really what it looks like. So it's it's you know in in the case of South Carolina, it's thirteen hundred rows of, of of soldiers and all of their data spread across columns, moving from from left to right, and then it's just really a matter of of filtering and sorting and applying formulas to to the to the men in a very you know in various different uh, tabs and and. Uh, components of the Google file, and that's really where the data comes from. And all of the charts in the article, in the articles have come from straight out of Google, Google software, amazingly enough. Could you discuss the demographics of South Carolina during the war? Yeah. Um, you know, I live in North Carolina and that, I, that's really where, where my work started, but I don't think you can talk about North Carolina without talking about South Carolina. They're, 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 they're very, I would say they're, they're very, they're they're symbiotic in, in a lot of ways in terms of in terms of the war, but South Carolina was the eighth most populous state and colony at the time, uh, comprised about 175,000 people uh, from from a census, an informal census before the war. About 100 and 111 or 10 or 11,000 of those were were uh, African Americans, mostly enslaved. So. Uh, from from what I can tell from the 1790 census, about one percent of of the uh, African American population was were free people of of, of color. So um, yeah, that's that's you know this, it was a fairly it was a fairly rural state outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, um, you know, one of the things that's that's fairly well known among some of the research of South Carolina and North Carolina too is that there are really two states. Uh, there's there's the coastal region of both states, and then there's what's called and what what's called not not today, but then the, the back country. So uh, and and you know really what I found in my research is that uh, that the, the research really supported those those two ideas of the coastal counties and the coastal districts having a, a very set economy of plantation agriculture larger numbers of enslaved people generally and then the backcountry was where mostly people coming down front down the great wagon road and settling in the backcountry and those were mostly Ulster Scots, Scotch Irish Presbyterians. Uh so you, you can see this in in the literature of the day. It actually kind of exists to some extent today that those two factions were vying for control at the time and to some extent North Carolina and South Carolina they they, they still 
they still there's still that that divide, so to speak, here after all that time. Doug, talk a little bit about the process of submitting pension applications and how do historians use them? Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, it's, it's it's still fairly complicated to me, but uh, not to oversimplify it, but uh, to, to talk about it broadly, there were a number of acts by Congress establishing pensions for Revolutionary War veterans. At, at a basic level, there, there were, they started in 18, 1818 uh, with Continental soldiers, and then uh, in 1832, it started. Uh, those, the 1832 Pension Act opened up pensions to the militia. Uh, so there were qualifications in both, but generally speaking, you know, there, there's, there's a, uh, I guess, a, I would almost say a, a two types of applications you generally see is, 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 is the 1818 to 1831 or two, and those are primarily Continental soldiers. And then after that, it's almost all militia. Um, um, so, and one of the, the biggest qualification for the 1832 pe- pensions with the militia was that a man had to serve. Uh, six months or more uh, with the 1818 Continental Army uh, pensions, a man had to demonstrate uh, financial hardship. That was one of the parts of of um, one of the requirements of the 1818 uh, Act. So, so as you might be able to surmise, the, the, the two, the two, what you see yields very different information. Um, you know, the Continental Army. Uh, pension applications are, are pretty scant on details. They do provide uh, occupations and and lists of men's property. That's very uh, that I, I, I like to see that. That's part of the data with all of these uh, articles I've written on on the pension applicants. But in terms of you know details about themselves, there's very little. Uh, 18, the 1832 pensions when the militia come in um, comes into it. Uh, one of the one of the the things I appreciate most about them is that they list, they ask a, 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 a uh, they, I guess the act required men to answer a set list of questions, which all, almost all the men do. And it's, you know, the questions range from where were you born? Uh, when were you born? Where did you enlist? Uh, with what officers did you serve? How did you come into the service? Were you a volunteer? Were you drafted? Were you substitute? And then, uh, and there's some other questions that detail their service. So when when I see those questions in a pension application, uh, I really I really appreciate that because it means that my job is going to be fairly easy for harvesting the data from that pension application. So, so um, yeah, that that is a challenge. Is is that some 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 pension applications don't yield any. I guess what I would call demographic data or anything about the pension applicant. And some of them are, are, are very, very detailed and take on almost a, a narrative uh, kind of description of a man's service. It's very, they become very much stories in a way, um, not quite literature, but, but uh, in some cases it approaches that. What were some of the different types of service for South Carolinians? Yeah, uh, basically three ways is the continental line. The Continental Army regi- regiments of South Carolina. There was the militia and the state troops, and um, um, I think you know, and you know, the, the Continental Line was, was. I think I believe there were six six regiments which served till about 1780 for the for the Continental Line. The militia, of course, existed all throughout the war, and then 
the state troops are a little bit of a of a I guess a special a special service to some extent that um, you know the Continental Line didn't exist after the siege of Charleston where where the Continental regiments were captured. So the state came up with a a um, I guess a system a system of state troops under their control, which which basically became a a state Continental Army, and, and that was called the state troops. Um, so the Continental Line were, as far as I can tell, uh, almost all of them were were volunteers. I don't know of anyone that that, um, that that was drafted into the South Carolina Continental Line. Um, the militia, of course, you, you get a, a uh, most of the men were volunteers, but many of them were also drafted at some point for service uh, during the war, and then a small percentage were substitute were substitutes for other men or were subs had their service substituted with another man that they uh, sometimes paid to, to serve for them. Doug, what were the major battles you encountered? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the battle of Utah Springs in September, 1781 was by far, not by far the most prevalent, but the most prevalent uh, battle. Uh, and again, I mentioned the state troops. Uh, it seems like almost all of the state troop uh, regiments or units were present at that battle. Um, oddly enough, um, many of those state troops weren't South Carolinians. They were North Carolinians. Uh, so that's something we may talk about um, later in the discussion is is, is the, the state troops and how they were recruited. But yeah, by far, the most prevalent battle was when I saw state troops in the pension applications, I generally <laughs> would see a few lines later that the men served at Utah Springs. So, uh, yeah, but it looks like, you know, it looks like most of the men in South Carolina that Utah Springs was very much a collection point uh, for most of the military aged men in in the state joining Nathaniel Green at that battle. Uh, Another battle uh, that that I guess was in second place or the second most populated was the the siege of, um, of 96, also in 1781. Uh, and then the, the third most popu- populated battle was Stone Oak Area in 1779. So, yeah, there, those, are, those are maybe not very well-known battles, but certainly Utah Springs has, get, has gotten much more attention than it, it used to. But the siege of 96 and especially Stone Oak Area, uh, I found, have been rather unrepresented in, in a lot of the literature, at least that, that I've seen. Doug, your article talks about African-Americans in South Carolina. What can you tell us about their service? Yeah, I, I, uh, that was probably the biggest area of concern for me in, in, in that um, pension applications generally didn't mention race or ethnicity. It's, 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 it's exceptionally rare for a pension applicant, at least in, in the 6,000 that I've documented and probably 12,000 that I've reviewed, throughout this process to, for a man to refer to his race. Um, um, so that was, that was a challenge for me is I knew that there were three men of color, African-Americans serving in, um, in all three States, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. And that was really, it, it, I had to find other means to, to document these men. I knew that their pension applications existed, but they probably didn't refer to themselves and their race. So I had to, I had to consult uh, African-American rosters, which had been completed, 
you know, probably in the past 50 years, there's been quite a few rosters of African-American men who served in the war, particularly the South. Uh, so I had to consult those and also census records of, of aligning census records and rosters with, uh, with men from the pension applications. So I, I found out that uh, you know, one, uh, 1. 1.9% of all South Carolina applicants were men, uh, free men of color, African-American men, of African-American men. I don't know of any, I didn't see any enslaved man that served in South Carolina. There's, there's at least a few that served in Georgia and North Carolina, but yeah, the figure was about 1.9%. And that's really in the middle of uh, North Carolina, which had considerably more uh, free men of color served in their continental line, particularly, um, but there was, the percentage was higher in South Carolina than it was in Georgia. So there's this happened a lot in the data that there was a progressive uh, decline in certain numbers the further south you went. So that exists in uh, rates of birth, um, and it, it, uh, it also occurs in in percentages of free men of color in in the militaries. What was Sumter's Law? Yeah, that, that's something that really jumped out at me when, when I was reviewing the applications was, uh, was, was this, there were notes uh, that a lot of the, uh, the, the very diligent folks that um, have transcribed these pension applications make note of, of Sumter's Law or what's also referred to as Sumter's Wages in, in many of the pension applications as footnotes. Uh, and, and, but essentially what Sumter's Law or Sumter's Wages was, was the 1781 recruitment effort to raise 10-month service state troops. Uh, and again, as I mentioned, that you know, the, the South Carolina Continental Line basically ceased to exist in May of 1780. Uh, but there was a very high need for South Carolina to provide troops uh, to, to defend their state uh, and to essentially eject them you know, push, push the, you know, to take back their state in 1781. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the, 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 the Thomas, um, Thomas Sumter was, was the, uh, the general in charge and, and took his, I guess he, he became associated with him, but essentially what it was, was that there was no way for the state to pay, uh, to pay men with money for that 10 month service. The only, funds or, or available resource were enslaved people, unfortunately. So uh, that, that's, there's, there, and there isn't a whole lot of information on, on Sumter's Law or Sumter's Wages at all. I think it's a great topic for someone to research, uh, research, you know, more than I have, more than the paragraph that I have in this article. Uh, but, um, I mean, there's some interesting statistics involved with it, or at least what I found at a topical level looking into it but uh you know it's 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 um it's one of those things where i found that uh, most men didn't actually receive an enslaved person as far as i can tell that they were promised there, there may not have been enough enslaved people to to quote unquote pay a man with uh that they received indents or or promises for payments later and, and those those um those facts and figures sprinkle are sprinkled throughout men's pension applications that a lot of men didn't get paid anything at all ever for for their for their ten month service in the state in the state troops, and then other men sold their their 
promissory notes from dents to other men uh, for them to profit by. So it's it's a very it was a very peculiar topic <laughs> to research, and I think a lot more needs to be done to to uh, to articulate and get to the bottom of of that peculiar law. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, that's, that's kind of a tough question, <laughs> I think, uh, for something like this. But yeah, on the whole, I believe um, that this article in South Carolina and the three others for Georgia and North Carolina, um, I think that they, that a lot of the data confirms, in many cases, the general understandings of, of Revolutionary War soldiers, and in some areas, I think it, it, it breaks hopefully some new ground in, in understandings of, of men, of the men that served. Um, one of the most fascinating things that I, I just love to, to, to get into the details of this are, um, and one of the things that really drove me to research this was, was the, uh, the transitory nature of society. Um, in that era. So we're talking about you know, um, the era of, of the Revolutionary War. Um, you know, the, from, from all outward appearances, you know, me looking from the inside into this data, that society at that time, before the war, during the war, and after the war was exceptionally mobile. Um, that many men, you know, many men in the Carolinas and Georgia weren't from there. They moved there. Their families moved there before the war. They served their time in the, in the various states, and then immediately after the war, moved to numerous dozens of points in states and territories to the West. I think that's a, a really prominent theme that, that just I just find fascinating, especially considering that's thousands of miles and there were no roads and things like that. Um, but um, yeah, I think that you know, in terms of confirming information about what's generally understood to be the service of a rural Revolutionary War soldier, uh, yeah, I think it's generally understood that most men were farmers, for instance. Uh, but you know, this data, this data confirms that with some numbers. So you know, a lot in in many cases, something like 70, 80 percent of the the men, depending on the state, turned out to be identify themselves as as farmers. That's uh, I think that's generally understood that yeah, you know, most Revolutionary War Revolutionary War Soldiers were probably farmers, but this lends some credence and provides a, a general uh, a general quantity of of the men in that sense. So, so yeah, I think that's that's I, I think that it, it confirms and also breaks new ground uh, um, in that regard. Uh, you know, the areas that we talk about with Sumter's Law and, and maybe prisoners of war, uh, uh, you know, the, maybe that's breaking some 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 new ground there. And, um, you know, and to be honest with you, I think that there's a lot, to, lot more to be discovered that um, I feel in many ways that this, these four articles, this South Carolina and the three other ones are really just scratching the surface of this data. I could have gone into so much more detail um, in terms of digging down into each one of these um, components, like where the men were born, where they served, how many battles they they served in, and I think more of that will come out right now. Right now, I'm researching Virginia, so so Virginia will be the the fourth state, maybe the last one that I do. But it's, it's a considerable effort. It's about four thousand uh, pension applications to to harvest data from. So I'm a little bit worried about that. <laughs> 
it's a lot of applications. But uh, on the on the flip side, I think it, it's it's very important work and work that needs it's work that needs to be done. And um, again, maybe that'll give me an opportunity to dig further into the details. And um, yeah, and, and then uh, one one other thing that has come out of this work uh, to sum up our conversation, perhaps, is that many people have uh, asked me if I'm going to write a book on these articles and. Uh, I've recently been contacted by a publisher, and I think uh, I think that's going to happen. <laughs> so, uh, so I think that's something to look forward to uh, in the next couple of years is uh, finishing up Virginia, uh, the pension applications for Virginia, and that'll complete the southern department, the four states of the southern department, and then hopefully turning uh, uh, the opportunity to to um, take all this information and present it in book form. Uh, easier said than done, but uh, that that's really where all this is going is to complete Virginia, perhaps do an article about that state and then dive straight away into uh, a book on on all this demographic information. So I'm excited about that. Douglas Dorney, thanks again. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.